Hello and welcome to the pilot of the imaginatively titled Film Brain Podcast. If you've not come across me before, I am the host of shows like Bad Movie Beatdown, which is pretty self-explanatory, and Projector, which covers releases that have opened in the UK before they do in the US. I'm Matthew Buck, of course I am the titular Film Brain, but I wanted to do a show where I could discuss things that didn't fit into either of those two categories, and thus I've created this podcast where I can talk about films that have just maybe come out, or maybe I can interview people. I'm doing a whole bunch of different things on this podcast, but today we're starting on very familiar ground with a very, very bad movie. I'm talking about Holmes and Watson, but being the monster that I am, I didn't just do this alone, because unfortunately I've subjected my guest to it today. First up, you might know from Folding Ideas, Dan Olson. Hello, thank you for uh, having me. And my second guest today is Petrosinatu. Hi, thank you for having me here today. Why am I here? Did you kidnap me? I'm very confused. (laughs) So, Petros, I know that you actually had a bit of a part to play in this movie. Yeah, uh, so I actually did uh, some background work on the film. Uh, I've done a lot of background extra work on a lot of different movies over the years, both in just regular stand-in work, uh, stunt work, body doubles, things like that. I was a frequently reused background extra for a couple of different scenes, all of which they made me shave off my beard for and then put a moustache on me. Oh, fantastic. That is the, the first way to sort of like describe this production, I think, is that they made me shave off my beard to put a moustache on me that would not allow me to move my face and then maybe jump up and down frequently to scream at people. Hmm, that sounds exceptionally well planned. I mean, I wouldn't have suggested this movie was an absolute train wreck, but uh, that's only my opinion here. Dan, what was your opinion, very briefly, of Holmes and Watson? Oh, oh boy. I... This was something. This was uh, th- this was a bit of an a bit of an oddity that I, uh, I I had quite a time trying to like wrap my head around what this movie was. I mean, the the main thing was is that it was boring. Mm. I mean, like I think just straight out, I was for the most part like my primary emotion going through this was just like waffling between like boredom and confused boredom. <laughs> A lot of, how did this end up like this? Even jokes that are, like, in a style that I would like. I'm like, I I should like this joke. It's a funny premise, but I'm not laughing because it's not funny. The timing's off. The delivery is wrong. Like, there's just... It's it's turtles all the way down with this one. Oh yeah. When I first came out of this movie, my actual thought was, wow, I should really recommend Dan to see this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I did go see it. I, I needed an excuse to get out to see it. I can't recommend that anyone see it, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> Yeah, I have to admit that um, I went and saw this movie kind of on a lark. I have to slightly sheepishly admit that there was a part of me that was kind of looking forward to this movie because I've actually been a little bit of a fan of Will Ferrell's work. I mean, the guy is incredibly patchy with regards to his resume, but when he's on form, he can be incredibly funny. I know that Farrell gets a lot of stick and not undeserved. Yeah, I think he he's very unpicky. Mm. A lot of directors will rely on the fact that it's like, oh, he's Will Farrell, he's funny, and just assume that everything between A and Z is just gonna like happen. Yes. And it's like even like great improv comedians, and Farrell can be a great improv comedian, but like great improv comes from solid direction. It's not just like, okay, here's 45 minutes to just say whatever. We'll cut out the best parts. You know, you find the funny joke and then you do it four or five times until you, you nail it. Good onset improv isn't actually improv it's workshopping yes exactly and but Farrell has never been a very consistent sort of actor I mean this is the this is the same guy that followed Anchorman with the combo of kicking and screaming and bewitched and that yeah. should have stopped me right there from following his work as much as I do so what I've heard and maybe Petros can back this up is that he is incredibly easy to work with absolutely So if a director has no ideas, he'll just do whatever he's asked to. He's not going to inject himself and be like, well, actually, maybe we should work this joke a couple more times until we get it. If the director says moving on, he's just like, 
awesome, moving on. Like, easy going to a fault, which ends up reflecting poorly on him because then, you know, his best performance isn't always what's getting out there because he's not insisting that his best performance get out there. If a director is willing to settle for his, you know, third best, he's more than willing to deliver third best. I, I can actually agree with that. Like, I mean, especially with the original Anchorman, and not a lot of people seem to know this, even though it's not exactly like a hidden secret or anything. They, they made a whole other movie out of the footage they didn't use for that movie. If you watch the, the footage that wasn't used, that was basically the original plot, it is horribly bad. Oh, wake up, uh, wake up Ron Burgundy. Yeah. The bank robbers. Yeah, it's thieves. It's, but it's just, it's so bad and just like unfunny as well. And it's like, that is basically what you're going to get with Will Ferrell. You, sometimes you'll get Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Sometimes you'll get Anchorman, Wake Up Ron Burgundy. Yes. And to what you were saying, Dan, is that, yeah, in terms of onset, he's incredibly easygoing and he's not one of those like actors who gets really inside their own head or doesn't talk to the extras. He was like, he was chatting with us basically because like, I'm, I'm like, standing over his shoulder at one point there's a scene uh, I don't know how much we can talk about the actual the movie itself here but uh, all of it we'll spoil the hell out of it it's fine <laughs> yeah okay f- 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 I'm, I'm here we're talking about everything yeah there's the scene in the gym when they're basically sort of like um, the MMA fight yeah the MMA fight that that uh, that they have like I'm I'm in the, I'm, in, I'm in the background of that scene I'm handing money over to Will Ferrell Th- this should also sum it up is that the fight sequence of that thing they took maybe six hours to do that but about three days to do everything else it normally be like the other way around yeah it would take like three days to film the fight sequence because that's complex especially one that's going to be like in a comedy and should be over the top and excessive and dramatic and it kind of was but i don't know it was just like like i'm standing there and i'm thinking to myself why <laughs> why am i here so i i think it's a good time to get into the production of this movie and how it developed in the way that it did so apparently this can be traced all the way back to 2008 this has been in development for a decade I am 0% surprised. It was apparently originally set to co-star Sasha Baron Cohen, not John C. Riley, when it was back then, and it was going to be produced by Judd Apatow. He doesn't produce this movie. This was made on a $42 million budget. You might actually be surprised to hear looking at the results of the movie. And they shot this uh, in very early of 2017. Is that correct, Petros? Um, not the parts I was in, uh, I was in actually, a lot of the parts that I were in were, um, at least some of it was pickup shots at least, we even shot some pickups in 2018, I know that. Oh, okay, uh, so when, when were you shooting then? Um, I did a bit in 2017 and a bit in 2018. Okay, so that, those sound like pickups to me, so they, yeah. they definitely went back and reshot some of this at least once, but I know that the initial shoot was very early in 2017, I think it might have been as early as January. At least I'm fairly sure of it, because I, I remember going to Holmes and Watson, I remember going on Holmes and Watson, like, it came at a point in my life when I'd started moving away from extra work, I don't really do extra work anymore as much, like, like, like I used to, so, like, it was around about mid-2018 when I started moving away from it, basically, so it was definitely probably the pickups that we were talking about here. Okay, so one of the weird things about this movie is that I think it's essentially uh, an Adam McKay movie, sort of an attempt to recreate that, because of course, if you don't know, Will Ferrell has collaborated with Adam McKay numerous times before on Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, Anchorman 2. They even got in the same DP, Oliver Wood. Uh, he's photographed all of those films from Talladega Nights through to Anchorman 2. He continues that here. There are several elements that kind of remind me of McKay. He produces on this movie, and I suspect that he probably had a heavy hand in sort of the post-production side of it. I'll get into that in a little minute. Just generally, it seems like there was an attempt to try and recreate that, even though there is a different writer-director here, Ethan Cohen, not to be confused with Ethan Cohen of the Cohen Brothers. He previously did Get Hard with Will Ferrell. That's his directorial debut, but he mostly works as a writer. He's done Men in Black 3, Idiocracy, Tropic Thunder, Madagascar 2. So they've been working on this for the best part of two years, but... In the time between filming and shooting, Sony had apparently tried to flog this off to Netflix because they'd had terrible test screenings. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, you've you, you got to be wondering if you're at Netflix and you're just sticking to yourself, hmm... 
I don't think we should buy this. When the person who signed up for like six Adam Sandler films is like, hmm, I don't know about this one. That <laughs> we'll take Cloverfield Paradox, but not your uh, not your Holmes and Watson. Yeah, this is actually the second time that uh, they've done that to Sony because I heard reports when Slender Man came out that Sony was trying to flog that off to Netflix, and again they went, nope. <laughs> like the McKay connection is like very present. Yes, if they had dropped in a reference at the end that the cast of Step Brothers were like the descendants of this Holmes and Watson, I would have been zero percent surprise oh yeah it feels like a prequel to that movie it does it really does it definitely is an attempt to try and recreate the sort of energy that riley and Farrell especially made in that movie which is considered to be this kind of crazy off the wall masterpiece in its own sort of circles yeah I mean, I rewatched it recently, and it's not very good on the whole as a movie, but it has just, like, some just imminently quotable lines, which for a comedy is kind of, like, your gold standard is if it's like, okay, I don't care if people watch it. If they're quoting it a decade from now, we did our job. Catalina Wine Mixer. Yeah. yeah. So much space for activities. After their failed attempt to sell it to Netflix, Sony decides, we're gonna release this over Christmas with no critics screenings, so we can essentially just sell it to audiences completely blind, and of course because critics are all on holiday break for the most part, the word of mouth will be hopefully delayed, although I don't think as delayed as they would like, because it initially appeared on Rotten Tomatoes with a zero racing, which eventually bumped itself up to 8%. Oof. Better than zero. I don't know. I would say an eight is worse than a zero because a zero, like at least some people are going to look at that and be like, uh, that's got to be a bug. <laughs> yeah. Like a zero tends to be movies that like are really bad, but they're so bad they're good almost. They've got one review. It's only a zero out of a technicality because only one review has been logged and it was negative. So it's like, uh, that's a glitch in the system. <laughs> an eight is like, Mm, no, that's... it's working. <laughs> Obviously, they had more than 10 people review it at that point. Yes. I tend to go with the rule of, like, whenever, whenever I'm writing something, it's like, you know, if, if somebody tells you you're a horse, you're not a horse. If two people tell you you're a horse, you're still not a horse. If three people tell you you're a horse, you might start thinking that you might actually be a horse, and if four people tell you you're a horse, just go buy a fucking saddle. Yes. That That's the way I go with reviewers, especially, like, if I, if I look at people that I trust, it's like, maybe Matt didn't necessarily like this movie, but I did. There are plenty of movies that you've disliked, Matt, that I really liked. Mm. Just to give a quick plot synopsis to people. So this is a comedic telling of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. At the beginning of the film, there's a trial. Moriarty, played by Ray Fiennes, is there. He's freed by Sherlock, who believes that he is not actually Moriarty and therefore gets the case thrown out. Then shortly thereafter, Sherlock goes to a party at Buckingham Palace, where, shock of shock, someone is murdered. Queen Victoria, played by Pam Ferris, Sherlock and Watson to find the killer who may or may not be Moriarty. That's pretty much it. So, I have to admit that I went into this movie unaware of this fact, but bizarrely, there are actually two different versions of this movie. Tell me more. The US and the international versions, at the very least, are different in that they have two different pre-title sequences showing how Sherlock and Watson met. This is so bizarre. I, I did not know this at all. People only discovered this when people started talking about it on Reddit and thought they were making it up. Nope, Sony has actually released two different versions in two different territories, for no particular reason. Did they think that it would be insulting to us as British people? I, because then they probably shouldn't have made the movie. I don't Well, know. now here's where it gets weird, is we should compare notes yes. on who saw what. Okay, so <laughs> I, I think, Dan, you should go first, because you'll be viewing, I presume, the American print. I, I assume the American version. I did not myself check like which one was which but so what happens in mine the pre-title sequence focused almost entirely on Sherlock Holmes arriving at school he gets bullied by his peers starts crying and then decides that he needs to like bottle up all emotion and become just a crime solving robot and uncries a tear and then gets everybody else in the school expelled for violations that he deduces based on like it's like oh you've got clay on your shoes you've got tobacco stains on your fingers 
characters for a better part of this like gag that runs for way too long. He's the only student at the school. And then maybe 15 seconds before the title sequence, a young redhead curly haired kid comes in and is like, oh, wow, the older kids can be really mean. Hi, I'm Watson. Hi, I'm Sherlock Holmes. Smash the title. Okay, so uh, from that description, I can tell you that the international version, it is nothing like that at all. It is totally 100% different. So the scene that I saw when I went and saw this movie, it begins with Sherlock as an adult in his garden growing a large vegetable, which he calls a dirty bitch. And then above him is Watson, who is contemplating suicide. Sherlock speaks to him and he tries to convince him to not commit suicide in his garden if he can help it. But Watson misinterprets what he's saying because what he's actually doing is offering up alternatives like, I will shoot you through the heart. And he makes the heart motion with his hands. And Watson sees this and goes, I love you too. And this goes on for, again, way too long. And he eventually manages to coax Watson out of doing the deed, even though that wasn't what he was doing in the first place. But nevertheless, Watson trips, falls, and lands on the marrow, smashes it. Then he just rolls around in it just for extra measure. And then they smash into the tiles. Definitely prefer the US version. Yes. As ridiculous as it is. I have a question. Yes. When you then get to the third act and Holmes needs to allow himself to feel emotions again and he tries to uncry a tear, did that make any sense at all? Oh no, it made absolutely no sense whatsoever. I was going to. You did not have the scene (laughs) where he like uncries the tear at the beginning. Oh my. So I watched an even worse version of an already terrible movie. Wow. That is astounding. So my hypothesis for this is that this scene that I saw at the beginning of the International Prince is the original version of the movie's intro as probably seen by the test audiences and the stuff about him suppressing emotions was stuff that they added back retroactively but for some reason maybe maybe they already had that half sort of developed like that in in the version they've shown to test I don't audiences. Know, it'd be- It'd be really easy for them to add that because none of the principal cast are involved in anything except for the one shot with adult Holmes struggling with the tear. And that is like probably 75% of the movie, just a medium close up single shot of Will Ferrell against a nondescript background in a constructed set. The stuff in the school is obviously a reshoot from the sounds of it. But I was just thinking that scene with Will Ferrell, was that something that was part of the original shoot? Did they retroactively add stuff at the beginning of the movie to actually make that a proper connected storyline? Because obviously that wouldn't make sense in terms of the character because that was never established in the first place. That was actually one of the things I was going to go on about was there is no setup for that at all. You don't get that in their interactions whatsoever, especially if they tried to paste it onto the movie after the fact. Yeah, but then if they went and like, well, we're going to reshoot this, we're going to add this bit where he like reconnects with his emotions emotions and then we're gonna add a new intro why would they then do a version that only had half of the reshoots in it it is very very puzzly what it reminded me of this whole bizarre circumstance was movie 43 always a great thing to be reminded of oh yeah When Movie 43 came out, uh, critics across the pond were bemused to discover that their plot synopses were completely different to each other, because the international release featured the original framing device for that movie where the kids are searching on the internet looking for Movie 43 and eventually cause the apocalypse. The US version had reshot links with Dennis Quaid and Greg Kinnear, and so the version that was sent out to theatres in the UK and across Europe and all that all featured the original version, and all the ones that played in the US featured the reshot. That's kind of interesting because, like, I depressingly saw that movie in the US, so, like, I saw the Greg Kinnear version, which did not make it any better, (laughs) just, just to clarify. But yeah, this is a very, very odd situation. I mean, it's not completely unprecedented with Will Ferrell. There are actually, to my knowledge, five versions of Anchorman 2. Wow, really? It doesn't surprise me that there's multiple versions of Holmes and Watson, but the question is, why? (laughs) I mean, having seen the movie... I understand why. (laughs) Okay, so I'm just, I'm looking at the podcast notes here, and there's this line that says, 
any walkouts in your screening? I think the only reason there weren't walkouts in mine, I mean, and they actually came pretty close, and it was me. Um, <laughs> because at one point, I was like, hmm, I kind of need to pee. I don't really need to pee that bad, but I kind of need to pee. It's a good excuse to, like, leave the theater for a couple minutes and then come back. And yeah, but there were only three other people in my screening, so there were limited opportunities for walkouts. You know what? I'm not going to lie. I also had that urge to pee during the last half an hour of this movie. I don't walk out of movies. I have walked out of like one. Actually, I mean, there's been a few, but it's almost always been because like, okay, friends were like, no, I've had enough. We're leaving. And like, they're the driver. Yeah, I've only ever, I've only ever gone out of one movie before in my life as well. Yeah. So the only one that I've walked out of was Wolf Creek. Yeah. And that was a like, nah, I just don't need to sit through this. Like, so a movie needs to be like, for me to normally hit a limit where I'm like, I am not sitting through this. It's got to be kind of like misanthropic. Mm. It, it's got to be like morally reprehensible on some level. And this one like i seriously kind of considered walking out like i got some bad news on behalf of a friend like kind of right before it started oh so that's always going to kind of taint a viewing experience yeah but like that and then sitting through it's like the first act it was just like i could just leave like i could just be doing anything else <laughs> anything anything if i left the theater now i'm not going to be able to change anything it's not like you know they're stuck on the other side of town i guess i could go pick them up it's like no they're ha just having a bad day on the other side of the continent but I could use it as an excuse to just leave. <laughs> uh, I didn't have any walkouts in my screening either. I brought up that question on the podcast notes because, of course, reportedly there was lots of walkouts from this movie. A whole bunch of I them. could see it. The beginning of this movie in particular, like the first... 30 minutes oh it's rough it's so bad it's so aggressively bad up front that you're saying they're going like you know if i walked out right now they'd give me a refund we are well within mm. refund window like i won't need to talk to a manager if i just go up to the desk right now they'll just give me my money back there's a 155 spider-verse i only missed the first seven minutes <laughs> you know like that's going through your mind as you're sitting there watching it it would be mighty tempting to be within the first half hour of this movie and just be like hmm I'm going to do something else with my time. Oh, yeah. When when I saw this movie, I didn't experience any walkouts, but it was kind of an awkward experience because a lot of my viewers, because it was a 12A movie, there was lots of young kids with their parents and all the kids are off because it's Christmas. Mm. That was awkward because, you know, there's lots of crude humor in this movie and it's <laughs> definitely not really aimed at that particular demographic. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily like vile. It's adult crude in that way that if you're not an adult, it's just going to be confusing. It just seemed like there was a lot of it, just cumulatively. And there is a lot of it. Yeah. Especially when um, Watson very early on says the line about, you make this place smell like fish pies and semen. That's a line I'm surprised they got away with. I think that line was different in my version. Oh, oh, we found more differences. I think he said like uh, a, a fishmonger and a swamp. Okay, he definitely didn't say swamp. He definitely said semen in the, in the international version. See, Matt keeps an eye out for these things. <laughs> Well, it's because that line stuck out to me. I was like, blimey, that's normally something they wouldn't allow in a 12-way race. Well, especially since, okay, like, in the trial, there's this joke that just, like, keeps going and going. And maybe you can explain that. Maybe this is a cultural one. I don't know. Maybe it's just unfunny. Tell me. Um, <laughs> where they, like, spend forever avoiding saying the word wanker. Uh, no, that's just unfunny. That's just unfunny. That's just unfunny. They're just dragging out that joke. Yeah, they're dragging out the joke, and this is actually a good sort of segue into, like, how the humor of the movie, like, just fails on a lot of levels. So they have this extended joke where Holmes has deduced that Moriarty is, in fact, a body double who has signed up to get executed in Moriarty's place for, uh, reasons. And as he's trying to explain the reasons, this extended joke joke about he's an onanist and then they they work up a thousand different uh he's squirting the cream innuendos yes yeah innuendos that are actually like way worse than the the word wanker and and eventually say uh wanker 
it did not work because they hadn't done the groundwork of establishing that it's like, oh, this is a joke about prudishness, you know, 19th century, like night, like not just prudishness, but like 19th century stigma about masturbation. So they hadn't laid that groundwork of like why the people diegetically find this to be scandalous. Like, why would this be a terminal illness of the soul? So the punchline lands and you're just like, okay... Yeah, and like you said, they basically just drag out this joke. And it takes forever. And there's loads of jokes in this movie that are like that. There's loads of jokes where they just drag it out and drag it out. I mean, you mentioned the first 30 minutes. I would actually single out the first 15, because that's how long that bloody trial sequence goes on for. Oh, that, that whole joke. sequence <sighs> where Sherlock and Watson have to show up at the court by 12. They get into this extended kind of trial of errors by themselves in their own flat trying to get out of it so they're about to walk out and the first half of the comedy of errors is will ferrell trying on stupid hats yes there's lots of that so that becomes a running joke through the movie as well but that's where it's most prominently seen that is a substantial body of it is just a joke of will ferrell trying on funny hats and it's a single medium close-up locked off shot that clearly just like costuming was right on the other side of the door and they had a bunch of stuff and it's like okay will just like just go grab a hat come out do a bit go grab another hat for you know 45 minutes straight and and then they moved on. And then it eventually culminates in the Make Britain Great Again Fez. Oh, God. Which, uh, I'm going to lay a claim here, that's a CGI hat. That did not look real. That was something that they pasted in. It does not look like they actually had it there. I'm not quite sure. I can't confirm or deny because I had my hands over my face at that point. <laughs> okay, I can confirm this. I saw this. I was like, that's not a real hat. I can see the way that it doesn't track properly oh my god this is in the first 10 minutes of the movie and we're resorting to this kind of lazy well we'll insert a topical joke in here because nothing else is working and then the second half of it happens because a mosquito is delivered to them and then the mosquito gets loose and then they start slapping each other in the face and then that escalates into him smacking watson with a cricket bat in the face and then it lands on the beehive and it smashes and then they we need to pause at the beehive so First, I want to say, like, this is a good example. I love some good slapstick. This is not funny slapstick. No. I love slapstick, and I'm not laughing. That's a bad sign. The pacing is all off. Two. So... So this is not just Sherlock Holmes as a comedy farce. This is a parody of very specifically... The Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes. Yes, I was going to bring that up. like, exacting specificity. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, so John C. Riley made an absolutely sublime parody movie called Walk Hard. Yes, he did. It's a pretty tight parody of Ray and Walk the Line. And it came out, like, a year after, like, Walk the Line, right in close proximity. The Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes, the first one, came out in 2008, which I don't know if you have a calendar handy. That's <laughs> over 10 years ago. And the last one was 2011, 2011. The end of 2011. Yeah. So it's been, I believe the youths are saying, a while. There are kids who probably will be watching this movie wondering, huh, there, there was another Sherlock Holmes movie? Are, are they trying to parody Sherlock, the TV series here? Or, yeah, or, I mean, there's like... a little bit of parody of the BBC Sherlock, but... A tiny bit. A tiny bit, but it's mostly, and like, because aesthetically it shares so much more with the Guy Ritchie, it's kind of just like, well... The Guy Ritchie Sherlock and the BBC Sherlock, like, they overlap in a bunch of ways in terms of, like, calculation vision, mm. but it's it's so much more specifically the Guy Ritchie version of that with, like, the trajectories and the foresight kind of thing rather than just disconnected random junk being thrown on screen to show his thought process. Which becomes a running gag itself through the movie and they even later on in the film actually directly recreate a scene from the Ritchie film 
Yes. With almost the exact same dialogue in the scene with um, Braun Strowman, the MMA fight scene, that sequence literally has the exact same dialogue as the scene where Shark fights the bare-knuckle fighter. Yeah, straight from the boxing match. They substitute the handkerchief for the pipe, but otherwise it's virtually identical, and they just do that whole scene recreating it for the straight punchline of, oh, he throws the pipe and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And that's all the punchline there is to that. You've got a lot of anachronistic humor, which, you know, I'm not opposed to. I think it's funny. Actually, there was a couple, like, I did, it did get a couple chuckles out of me. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I did chuckle a couple of times during this as well. I chuckled zero times before, like, the midpoint of the movie. <laughs> it took a while before I even found anything, like, mildly amusing. But a lot of it, I kind of keep repeating this, but it's like, there's jokes that it's like, okay, I should find this funny, but I'm not. You know, there's a whole one, like, I love it in particular whenever they'll do a like dead body gag where they'll clearly replace the actor with like a dummy yes so that the other actors in the scene can just like throw it around and then it's just like flailing like a dummy every time in like an snl sketch somebody gets thrown off of a roof and it's clearly just a bunch of garbage bags stuffed into a suit i think it's hilarious every single time they have one of those in this movie and i'm sitting there like i love these jokes and this is just not funny i'm not laughing that scene is brutal yeah the timing of it is all off it got one chuckle out of me at the very end where they managed to get the delivery right for one line where Holmes says, it's like, remember Watson, toilet-sized chunks. Good delivery on literally one line. You got one chuckle out of me for what has been a, like, eight-minute scene. Oh, yeah, just to give some context, people. So if you've seen the trailer, you might recall the gag about the selfie stick that eventually knocks out the Queen. What you did not see in the trailer is that leads to at least another five minutes essentially farting around with her body because they think that they've killed her. And so it goes into this very, very long bit where they're trying to cut up the body, they force a face dummy into a chest and then she miraculously arrives. And this all sounds way funnier than it actually is. Oh yeah, it is almost literally beating a dead horse, or in this case, beating a dead queen. Apparently this scene in particular was a source of a number of walkouts, particularly the moment where I think Shark starts dry humping the queen. Trying to dry hump the, the body into the chest, yeah. Yeah. Like, you, you guys describing it right now make me want, want to walk out right now. I'm not even <laughs> watching the movie right now and I want to walk out of it. It is a very punishing scene. It's another one of those examples where it just goes on for so long. And, like, on paper, a scene where, like, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley try to stomp the dead body of Queen Victoria into a chest should be killer. And it's not funny, and that should be a crime. I mean, it really is kind of criminal how unfunny this movie is, given the absolute murderous row of talent involved in it. I was going to say that is that there, there's something about this film that, like, it seems to have so many great ingredients in there. It's got Sherlock Holmes, a great premise, ripe for parody. Like, one of the reasons I, I wanted to be on this was because I'm a very, very big Sherlock Holmes fan. I've read a lot of the original stories. I've watched pretty much every adaptation out there going back to, like, the 1970s. I'm a huge fan. And I have absolutely no problem with it being parodied. Yeah. You know, Sherlock as a farce, if you just, like, take Sherlock and run it via Naked Gun, absolutely. Yes. Like, sign me up. Yeah, I mean, I, I could totally have seen that being seen this like 10, 15 years ago, being played by Leslie Nielsen instead. I could totally see that sort of comedy being made and actually being kind of successful. And the thing is, that it's got a good cast. I like Will Ferrell and John C. Roddy to a certain extent. Sometimes it can go a bit all over the place with their stuff. They're like hit and miss. There's a lot of stuff here that clearly should have made this film great. But evidently, it has turned out to be nothing short of a giant clusterfuck of awkwardness. Here is the cast, just to give you an idea. In the supporting cast, you've got Ray Fox. Rob Brydon, Rebecca Hall, Kelly MacDonald, Steve Coogan, Pam Ferris, Hugh Laurie, and it's just an insane number of people in this film, and most of them look like they only worked for about a day? Steve Coogan and Hugh Laurie in particular only look like they worked on this movie for a about a day. Oh, Hugh, Hugh Laurie doesn't get out of a chair. Like, he absolutely was only there for a day. Ray Fiennes has about ten lines in this movie, all told, and he doesn't actually appear as Moriarty until the final scene of the film. He at least is at, uh, four different locations, so he probably had to show up, you know, 
at least a couple days. Yeah, he he clearly did about four days work. The Steve Coogan one. This is this is going into sort of like my my BTS knowledge, as it were. Yeah, Stan and Ollie is uh, is a film coming out relatively soon about Lauren and Hardy. Yes, based on what I saw when I worked on it, it looks like it's going to be absolutely amazing. Oh yeah, it is. I I have seen that movie and it is really good. It is much better than this. <laughs> yeah, they filmed Nightmares of Close Succession. I think that was about a year apart, at least when I was on them. When I got onto Holmes and Watson, I was thinking, about, okay, yeah, you know, they, they obviously did that film together, and then like decided, okay, let's do another one together. And I thought Steve Coogan would have a bigger role, but if he only has like one scene basically, and that's it. Yes. And this is something all the extras noticed on set. Steve Coogan did not look like he knew what the hell was going on. Like I've been called in here, given the script yesterday, and somebody has attached a metal arm to me. Okay, so. Th- that scene he looks so bewildered yeah it became for me emblematic of like a very consistent problem throughout the film and you see it in particular with steve coogan's uh performance it's so improv heavy that the editing ends up being just terrible because they can't match cuts like constantly throughout this film when they do cutbacks people are in different positions not like oh they're they've moved though that happens to lauren lapkus a bunch of times you know they're just holding themselves differently like they're no longer looking down they're now looking up or they're looking to the side or their shoulders are in completely different places or their hands are different and it's like if that happens once or twice in a movie like it's like okay as an editor you can't always cut around every problem but it's like it's so consistent and in that scene in the gym it's happening just like constantly and like every time steve coogan is like visible he's standing different that scene was actually um was something that stood out to me not just because of the editing but also just generally on a technical level this is part of the reason why i really want to talk about this movie i mean it's not just bad comedy because those are kind of dime a dozen what genuinely surprised me about this movie is how bad it is technically speaking and in that scene there's another problem some of the footage is out of focus I'm not even lying. Okay, this answers a question that's been bugging me for so long. Was that they got every shot. And, like, when they were talking, like, in the back, and they're like, they seemed, like, really happy with it. And, like, you know, okay, they kept us on set for, like, 16-hour days, but still. But they made their day. Yeah, it, they, they made their day, and it was great. And then a couple of days later, I got a call coming back saying, oh, can you come back to, uh, can you film this? I like, no, sorry, I'm, uh, I'm busy working on this day. And for once, unlike a lot of the times when I've been asked to come back after like several 16 hour days, I'm just like, oh, fuck, no, I, I can't bother. This time, I actually genuinely was busy. They seemed so desperate to get the people who were like near the main actors back. Mm. So like for continuity. So this explains that they probably didn't go ahead and shoot that section. So uh, somebody in like the group chat basically said, but I'm, sure, I'm assuming Petros, you weren't responsible for everything bad with this movie. Like, I actually may have been slightly responsible for one bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's the, here's the problem that I noticed. You'll notice in that conversation with Steve Coogan in particular, when, when he first appears, watch uh, for a certain angle of Holmes and Watson, and you'll notice that all those shots from that particular angle are out of focus. So what's happening is that not only do you have these jarring continuity errors, you also have the focus snapping between cuts. Oof. Yeah. Like, very obviously between them. And what has happened, I speculate, uh, Holmes and Watson are framed in front of these huge backlit windows. And what I suspect has happened is the backlighting has thrown out the focus on the camera. This footage should be unusable. Someone reviewing this footage should have went, no, we can't use this. Junk it immediately. And yet it's found itself into the final version of the film. And it looks incompetent. That sounds like amateur hour sort of thing, because, like, unlike a major production, you're working with cinema cameras, the Focus is all manual. And- yeah, the assistant camera, they get out their measuring tape, they run it from the sensor plane out to the actors, and it's like, okay, what are we at? Well, we're at, you know, 1.3 meters, and so they set the lens, and in fact, the assist, the camera assistant these days, they've all got their little, like, remote control contraption with, like, incredibly precise calibration, so it's not just like, oh, well, it kind of looks like they're on the marks on the side of the thing, you know, and they've got their own personal little monitor with ultra-high edge detection, and they've got, like, focus peaking and everything that tells them exactly what's in focus and everything, so to get something not in focus in that way is insane especially since it's like it's a locked off shot like people aren't moving the camera's not moving this entire movie is like people come in they hit their mark and then they stand there and talk and improv for an hour 
and then that gets cut down into a five minute scene and then they're allowed to like walk again that is basically it so, i mean if you're the kind of person that goes absolutely crazy at improv heavy comedies because they have completely locked off shots you will despise this movie perhaps even more so see the thing is with adam mckay at least he would direct those scenes in a fairly imaginative way sometimes you don't get any of that flair from eaton cohen's direction in any of this in fact it doesn't seem like he's got any clear direction of what the film's trying to do it's people standing bolt straight and talking yes yeah that was something i, I know i noticed when when we were filming was that there was quite a lot of that it was definitely a lot of lockdown or something i assumed it was because they were doing a lot of post in this day and age one of the main reasons why you have such like lockdown sort of things when you have a lot of so, like uh, we don't want to do motion tracking we want to save some money on effects yeah exactly which like speaking as someone who's who does a ton of motion tracking as part of my job it's a pain in the ass yeah it's like okay fair so the scene that i'm thinking of is the scene at the very end with moriarty when he's in the old west bar and a kid delivers a note to him that has been sent from Holmes and Watson. That moment is played as shot reverse shot, essentially. So kid comes up, lock shot, Moriarty, lock shot, looks over, kid is gone. That made me laugh accidentally because it's pretty clear they just said, okay, kid, move out of frame. And then they just put that shot in the edit. Any other person would go, okay, pan, pan, pan. No, we don't even do that. That would be imaginative, as opposed to sloppy, which is what this film is. There's a bizarre amount of, like, consistent minor discontinuity. Action is not preserved across cuts in, like, small things like people closing doors or picking up items. Things that just, like, very kind of natural, fluid editing. And it's bizarre because it's like, okay, you have a bad movie. What are you going to cut out? Are you going to cut out a bad joke that doesn't work? Or are you going to cut out the 17 frames of somebody closing a door if there's not a joke literally being said, just cut it? That had to have been the decision that was made in the editing bay of like, it's like, no, no, just over-tighten it. Just get every joke possible so that somebody will laugh at something. Oh, yeah. This is part of what makes the beginning half hour so dreadful is that it's janky, it's unfunny. Will Ferrell's accent, it's impossible to place what the intent of it was yes will ferrell speaks constantly like like this sort of like this impersonation of a british yeah. person but just sort of speaking slightly staccato i just think I remember it being basically like an impression that felt like ron burgundy trying to do a british accent not will ferrell trying to do a british accent I don't even want to say it has, like, the character of a SNL skit, because people put more effort into their SNL characters than this. It has the character of you and your mates are sitting in your living room, and somebody's like, oh, you know what would be funny is if, like, if the third Hobbit had actually gone like this, and then another friend's like, yeah, it'd be amazing, and then, like, the two of you just get, like, super into it, and you're like, no, Pippi, you know, like, you start making up stupid voices, like, it has that kind of a sound, it's not even, like, professional improv, it's friends dicking around in their living room improv. It's exactly that kind of level, and that's what it feels like, it does feel kind of like Will Ferrell and John C. Riley are just sort of dicking around for most of this movie and I want to say that they're not really phoning it in I think they're giving their full energy in it it's just that there's nothing there yeah, there's, there's really nothing, nothing there. there the best scene and like you can you can tell like planning planning is so important the most out of place scene is also the best scene and it's the funniest and the most jokes within it land and it's the musical number yes the Alan Menken musical number that arrives completely out of nowhere completely out of nowhere but it was okay this involved a lot of planning there's a lot of complicated camera work, which means, again, planning. They have to write the song, so planning. They have to have playback on set, so planning. And the planning shows off because it's like, oh, they actually thought about this more than 15 minutes before the cameras rolled. So there's actual jokes that land that have been paced out so that they have punchlines that arrive at a good time. And it's not the funniest comedy song ever, but it's like, okay, this is tolerable. It's like an oasis yeah. in a sea of terribleness. What's funny is you, you, you guys have mentioned uh, improv a lot, and the funny thing is there wasn't as much as I think you would assume there was. Interesting. There was a bit of improv, but a lot of it they, was... They were, just... they, were working from, they were working from a script. Probably just a bit of a bad script. Yeah, and they were doing. It was like the, it was the same lines. It's like okay, take take two, and it's the same lines. They would do what is traditional is like you'll do a couple of versions of the original version, and then you riff on it a bit. Yeah, 
and, and and then you riff on a bit. That's, you know, that's always a great way to get improv out there. But quite frequently, it would just be the lines and the delivery. They did seem to come alive a little more when they did do the improv stuff, but it wasn't as often as, like, you'd think, really. It was actually fairly infrequent. Oh, that's almost worse. Yeah. That, that means somebody wrote it down <laughs> and... It's one thing if it's like, okay, this is just Will and John just dicking about and, you know, not everything that comes off the front of your brain is going to be gold. But if it's all written down, that's just worse. Like, because then it's like, okay, all of Rebecca Hall's stuff is just dreadful. Like, it sounds like every line coming out of her mouth sounds like she made it up that exact second. They have no idea how to play that character whatsoever. They really no, don't. I, I was trying to work out what the joke of the character is, because obviously there's the joke about the fact that John C. Riley's Watson doesn't believe that she's a doctor because she's a woman. But of yeah. course, the way that you do that joke is it turns out that she's more competent than him because of course he's a comedy buffoon he's someone that suggests heroin on their first encounter and yet they also bring up in that scene that she is the pioneer of electroshock therapy and that her patients all die yeah and I go that defeats the joke like we've life expectancy is up to three weeks so it's a joke about like 19th century medicine all right I'm here for it. It's a joke about 19th century medicine that sounds like somebody made it up on the spot. So it's just kind of like this really vague reference rather than being an actual, like, well-structured research. It's like, not incisive it, enough. Be, yeah. And that's basically the problem with this movie is that it's nowhere near incisive enough as it needs to be. I mean, it should be a really kind of proper parody of Sherlock Holmes. Like, we're going after this thing. We're going after these tropes. And it never does that. And going back to this point about how you were saying that it feels really kind of chopped up, I really get the impression that there was a lot of hands kind of meddling in this. I mentioned the Anna McKay thing. The film opens with a Hannah Montana quotation mm -hmm. and this has been a running gag in all of Adam McKay's movies going back to, I think, Talladega Nights at the very least. This opening quotation and it turns out it's just completely made up and that even works its way into the big short and it shows up here and just lending credence to the idea that, oh, it's an imposter Adam McKay movie. But I really get the impression that once the test screenings came in and once they couldn't sell it off to Netflix, I get the impression that Sony was going, and they did the exact same thing with Slenderman. Okay, PG-13, 90 minutes, go, go, go. Mm -hmm. I got the impression at certain points that this might have been filmed as an R-rated movie. Uh, probably. I mean, there's, like you already said, there's a lot of crude humor, there's a lot of sexual humor, so it... There, it there's at least one moment that feels like it was cut, where in one of the endless anachronistic jokes, uh, John C. Riley uh, gets his gets his dick out when he's doing a drunk telegram. So, the, the drunk telegram, like, that's actually sort of the opposite of the uh, dead queen joke, in that, like, it was funny at the beginning and then it just went on too long. Yes. Like, I can actually see maybe how this got chopped up like if this was cut from R then they must have been they came out of production being like okay we have a funny movie but then all the best jokes were too crass and so those all got cut and you were just left with this because it does feel like the B material essentially yeah but the thing is that in that scene like I said there's that moment where he pulls out his and dick out on the like table and, thump sound. and that would be the, the moment where you do an insert shot and yet it does a standard cut there and you go, oh, there's something jarringly missing there. Yeah. It reminds me of that moment in Step Brothers where he puts his balls on the on the drum kit. Mm -hmm. It'd be like doing that scene, but you couldn't actually show it. Yeah, it's got to be a there's something about Mary moment where you show it. The audience isn't yeah. expecting you to show genitals on screen. And so you put genitals on screen. That's the shock and that's the punchline. Yes. It's Ben Stiller's balls caught in a zipper. It's It's the balls on the drum kit, except there's no balls. So thump <laughs> there's no so there's no punchline exactly and there's kind of weird moments in this and also we should bring up the adr work <sighs> the wonderful adr work that is almost pervasive in this film and clearly they were trying to stitch this up in editing to try and make up for missing footage so you've got scenes that are just entirely segued with we found a clue and now we're going in this place and now we're going in this place and very late in the film kelly mcdonald has a moment where she's speaking to watson she's tied him up on a big wheel and you can clearly see it the words that she's saying are nowhere no. near the words that are coming out of her mouth yeah a lot of exposition from behind or people expositing from just like off camera in general in framing they avoid having other actors in shot kind of as much as possible yes so there's no over the shoulders it's like you've either got a two shot or you've got 
a single, always locked off, medium close-up, locked off, medium close-up. No other actors visible, so we don't need to worry about complex continuity, which just then goes back. If they're doing this from a script and they're not heavily improvising, why would you frame it like that? Like, that's a thing that you do to compensate for the fact that you're just letting the actors ramble. It's framed like an Apatow, but wasn't shot like an Apatow, but it still ends up feeling, it's just this, oh man, this just, it's, oh. It, we're oh. exploring this and it just gets worse and worse. I mean, there's all kind of sloppiness in the movie. I mean, even the stuff like there's a joke about Shark eating onions and they've just literally put an onion skin on an apple and you can even see where it ends before Feral puts his <sighs> mouth on it. Yeah. It's like, inconceivable amounts of sloppiness. You sound very stressed, Dan, in the, in, in the background here, is, is, is all I'm going to say. <laughs> it sounds remotely like your head might explode in a second. It's not quite that bad. I think, I think I'm getting into it. I'm getting myself, like, worked up. Maybe a little bit performatively, but it's, it's mostly just, like, as I talk through it, as I talk through, like, the chain of decisions that needed to be made in order to arrive at this point, and, like, why would you make the decisions that you did? There are decisions being made in service of ends that shouldn't actually be factors so why wouldn't you do it another way like if if you have gone in with like okay we're working off of scripts then it's like why aren't you doing over the shoulder shots it may drive me bonkers when it's overused but like why aren't you just throwing it on a slider at least a little bit to get a bit of motion in there why don't you have at least a minor amount of blocking within this room like if you have a script and you're sticking to it why aren't you doing the proper coverage why are these scenes going on so long why are they just just like four people standing bolt straight, staring at each other, talking with no motion whatsoever. I mean, the fact that the mystery at the center of it is completely half-assed is not a surprise, but it is surprising when they were working off a script. Yeah. It's... I feel, I feel like I'm sort of like dropping in little little things of like it, it's actually a lot worse than you think. And it's sort of like just... <laughs> yeah, it, it does it does make it worse than you think. My inclination is to it's like okay, well I'm going to be charitable and assume they were just riffing endlessly, and so therefore they needed to then work around, and that's how you know. Here's the explanation of how this happened, and it's like no, they didn't do that. They were sticking to the pages. They get, they're getting their pages, and it's like oh. Oh no. <laughs> That's just active incompetence. It's, 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 it's kind of nice to see two guys who, who liked, well, not liked it, but sort of have to for their jobs watch bad movies and have to think of, okay, there's got to be a reasonable explanation for why this is. It's like, no, no, it, it, it was just bad. Oh, oh man. I think we have realized over the course of this discussion that this is even worse of a mess than we initially realized <laughs> coming out of the movie. One final thing, I wanted to mention uh, The Verge recently had an article talking about this movie, and they hypothesized that the main reason that people aren't going to see comedies like this, that films like this are kind of out of date, is because audiences are getting their comedy from things like superhero films instead. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I would actually, to a certain extent. Um, sort of? I would approach it from both directions. One, I would say that, like, there is a lot of just natural comedy woven into modern blockbuster fare. The Marvel movies all have a wit to them, particularly, like, you know, like the, the first Iron Man movie, the first Thor, like, they're just straight-up comedy films. You know, Ragnarok was then going back to that. It's just a straight-up comedy film. And so there there is a, a good deal of that. But then I would say, like, in the other direction, big-name comedy, it's not even that people are getting it elsewhere it's that it's abysmal in its own right you know it's not that improv is bad it's that it's being made bad because directors are being lazy with it and they're not like using it as an opportunity to like really workshop a really high impulse joke there on set and capture that sort of spontaneity they're just, just turn the camera on no nah, man just do your thing and then it's like, yeah, we got it. We got something in there. There's like gold in there. And then they go and they try to stitch it together. And, you know, maybe the first time you see it, you sit through Superbad, you sit through Talladega Nights, you're forgiving of it because it's still kind of new. There is a dynamic to it that does kind of work and you can also then over the course of time see that dynamic draining out of it you go and watch um oh what was that kevin hart dwayne johnson one uh central intelligence 
uh, identity thief. The house, the uh, Will Ferrell Amy Poehler one from last year. Oh, gee, the yeah, they're just dreadful. I wouldn't even say that it's like, oh, well, they're all dreadful because, you know, I guess this is a couple years now, but The Heat, that was a very improv heavy one. And that one is hilarious. But on the whole, we've had like one The Heat over the last several years but how many identity thieves happy time how many happy time murders like it's the saturation of just bad improv comedy it's not well structured it's not well guided it's not well directed they end up feeling like a two hour long snl sketch oh yeah because the way that i currently stand on this is that i think there is less comedies being made i think you can see that we're at a point in the genre where i think it's kind of run out of mileage at the minute it's kind of in that ebb and flow that all genres kind of go through we're kind of in that period where we're yeah. not really onto the next big thing yeah but we kind of got the dregs at the last phase where you got your sort of hangover stuff your apatow stuff because like in investors right now especially if a genre is on the wane then they get even more like oh well, we got to stick with what works and they're still in that phase where it's like oh what works is pineapple express mm. they're still clinging to like that and so that's the only stuff that they green light unless a comedy is kind of falling into that feel they're not going to give it much Money, and as a result, you end up with this self-defeating problem. No new comedies are succeeding because they're only giving money to ones that are basically doomed to suck because they're being made cheaply by uninspired hacks. I mean, this wasn't a cheap movie. This I mean, was this not a, a cheap this movie, is, no. This, this, is a this cost a shocking amount of money. Yeah, this is a $42 million movie that has out-of-focus shots in it. This is very much um, a mid-budget movie, which, again, is another kind of rarity in Hollywood these days. I think there's also a common sense that comedy doesn't travel very well, especially comedy based on wordplay, essentially, because yeah. obviously they're playing much more towards international audiences. Those kind of nuances will get lost in dubbing, so I could definitely see a studio going, okay, you need to put more slapstick into this, because that's yeah. more universal people like slapstick in Germany and so on and so forth. When you look at the comedy scene at the minute it definitely feels like there's not really a lot there. I mean, yeah, you can sell a movie on like, hey, Will Ferrell's gonna be in it and you'll get an investor to go for it. But when you look elsewhere, you go, who is actually doing comedy these days? Ben Stiller's doing some drama on Showtime? Jim Carrey's not done a movie in goodness knows how long. Like his last movie was a documentary about his last hit movie. All the old comedy stars seem to have largely moved on to more serious fare or just simply disappeared altogether. And the only new comedy star at the minute is yeah. Kevin Hart, which is kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah, you're not getting a lot of new blood in there. Yeah, I would say that there's a bunch of kind of complex and self-reinforcing reasons for that, and also that I guess I would agree with Verge is that we are seeing that thing where actors with a decent amount of range and sharp comedic timing are able to find jobs in what is currently mainstream, which is blockbusters and Marvel films. And consistently paying work. And consistently, you know, consistently paying work. You can get, uh... Oh, Ant-Man. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. Like, he's he's nailed basically a, a role for the next, like, decade that makes use of his comedy skills. It's kind of funny. They, they're, they're getting, like, these these roles that last for, like, the next decade and in a way that's like... It's like signing on to a TV show without giving up your entire life mm -hmm. the way a TV show would. Yeah. We're finding these leading men like Chris Pine who are just as talented at self-effacing sincerity as they are at legitimate sincerity. Do we need someone who whose only skill is making goofy faces. I think that's definitely why a movie like this kind of gets made in the way that it is. It's just sort of this kind of floppy hangover from a last generation. And I really hope that the genre does come back, because yeah. I think we do need some proper good comedies. I think Game Night earlier this year shows that you can make a good scripted comedy that actually looks yeah. like a film. I mean, and Lauren Lapkus, <laughs> so like, I keep coming back to her. So she's, a, I think, a underrated comedy character actress. She does a lot of kind of like backgrounds secondary, tertiary, quaternary characters. Yeah, this is the first time I've seen her in anything. Well, she's in uh, Jurassic World. She's oh, oh, the um, control room operator that the dude wearing the Jurassic Park shirt that he hits on, and she's got the sharpest line in the movie of the delivery on like, 
I have a boyfriend. She does have like sharp comedy skills and it's kind of bad when it's like, okay, this is probably your biggest role and it's just dreadful. (laughs) Yeah, she spends the entire movie (sighs) with the mentality of a cat. That is literally the joke. There is nothing really to extend beyond that. She just spends her time meowing and licking a lollipop. Yeah, and it's not well set up. There's no payoff to it. Well, the payoff is somehow worse than the joke. She was pretending. Yeah, in a payoff that feels like they didn't actually have the joke written at that point. And so they're just referencing this shtick that she's been doing that they hadn't shot yet. It's bad that that pure comedies and like non-franchise comedies are dying. dying. I think there's a lot of talent that's then like not being utilized in that and that's kind of sad. But then at the same time, I think we're also spoiled for comedy talent in the blockbuster actors like a lot like there's a lot of great comedy talent in there you know i have to briefly mention the bizarre billy zane cameo in this as well i liked it because it was so stupid and so out of nowhere (laughs) and it was short yes it was mercifully brief uh the titanic inexplicably pops up at the end of this movie and then the characters go on to board the titanic and then hey it's billy zane it's billy zane (laughs) Like, it's not even his character from Titanic. He literally just yeah, says Billy and Zane. Great. And, and Billy's just like, hey, all right, where's the bar on this boat? And that that's it. And it's over. And it's like, you know what? There you go. In a better movie, that would be a great second tier joke. It ends up being the second funniest joke in the entire movie. Yeah, it's one of the funniest jokes in the movie. And it's still yeah. reminding me of Zoolander 2. Uh, I'm going to outro this by saying that uh, if you want to see something instead of Holmes and Watson, watch Without a Clue with Michael Caine, a much funnier Sherlock Holmes spoof. Uh, I haven't seen that in several years, but I'm pretty sure it's much better than this one. Also go and see Stan and Ollie, which also stars Steve Coogan and John C. Reilly, and is much better than this, and is also ironically being released by Sony in America. <laughs> and me, stars, stars me in, the, in my incredible background role again. Yes, yes. Uh, I would say the far, 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 far better John C. Riley parody Walk Hard, which is currently enjoying its ten-year sort of uh, reevaluation, which it rightfully deserves because it is a it is a very funny comedy. Yes, I, I think I was one of the five people that actually went and saw that when it was in cinemas, and it is easily the best spoof movie of this current millennium. Uh, Petros, do you have any recommendations? Right now, I'm just going to say go see Into the Spider Verse and Aquaman because it's better than than Thompson Watson. Yes. I, I admittedly I haven't seen Into the Spider Verse, but everybody I know if, has just. If you're standing there it. and you're like, well, I've already seen Into the Spider Verse four times, the correct answer is go see Into the Spider Verse for a fifth time. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, where can people find you, Dan? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FoldableHuman or uh, YouTube, uh, Folding Ideas. And where can people find you, Petros? Uh, people can find me on Twitter, it's at Petros of Sparta, and on YouTube at Leon Unity. I do original short films and web series. Excellent. Uh, you can find me at FB underscore BMB on Twitter, Filmbrain Reviews on Facebook, Filmbrain BMB on Tumblr, and you can find me at Filmbrain on YouTube. And that's gonna be it for tonight, so I'm gonna say I'm Matthew Buck, fading out. Thank you for listening to the Film Brain Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that if you want to support my work, be it podcasts or YouTube videos, please go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash filmbrain where you can experience those episodes early, among other perks. And just a quick shout out to my Patreons, Tim Poppleton, SoFox, Inigo Almandoz, Tim Tark, G Viral, Robert Murray, Henry Jacob, Anoria Hack, Manuel Jonan, Marley Berrickmans, Joshua Bowden. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media, media, please use the hashtag FilmBrainPodcast.